Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us. I have a very special guest today. We have Marine retired Lieutenant Colonel Hal Kempfer and CEO. He is the CEO of Global Risk Intelligence Planning. Simplify, my friend. How are you this morning? Good, Sherry. How are you? I'm doing great, which is more than I can say for the people over in Ukraine. That's, which is our topic today. It seems like the only people that don't know Putin invaded Ukraine are the people that live in Russia because they're not allowed to listen to words like invasion or war or war crimes on TV because whoever says those words is probably going to end up 15 years in prison. <laughs> so yeah. it, it's yep. kind of sad. But you know what? After we talked yesterday, I was looking at the map. I was like, okay, he took Crimea and nobody said anything. Belarus rolled over and played dead. Did he really think he was going to just stroll into Ukraine and take it and nobody was going to notice? I, I think what he saw was, uh, in, you know, 2014, uh, you know, he basically rolled in there and took Crimea, albeit they, they did it initially with a kind of surreptitious thing using these uh, this technique or tactic called Little Green Men where they uh, send in Russian troops, but they don't wear uniforms with Russian insignia. And then he did the, uh, took over that area in the Donbass region uh, where uh, they, they use Russian separatists, but I think everyone assesses there's a lot of Russian military that are involved in that as well. And he got a foothold. And there were sanctions, but the sanctions really weren't that strong. Russia was still allowed to operate in the international economy. They are still doing banking, they're still selling things, and everything else. I think what he thought was he was going to, you know, he's, he's had a run. You know, he's had a run of doing things. He, he got away with it in Georgia in 2008, where he rolled in and took over the Assessor region. You know, he saw what he got away with in Chechnya, obviously. He had had a run of doing a lot of different things, and I think what he thought was he's going to put this massive armored force on the border and, uh, you know, either force massive concessions. But obviously, you know, his his main plan was to just roll into Kiev. You know, his, you know, his um, covert operators would decapitate the government. He put a puppet government in, and it would be, you know, uh, somewhat of a fait accompli uh, within less than a week. It just did not work out that way. He completely... He completely underestimated, misunderstood the Ukrainian military, the Ukrainian people, for that matter. And they have put up a fierce resistance. And the Ukrainians, you know, they're, they're not who they were eight years ago. They, you know, whereas he's been touting this Russian improvement in their military, the Ukrainians have dramatically improved as well, uh, with the U.S. playing a major role in that improvement. And you're seeing that play out on the battlefield. Well, you have hats off to the people of Ukraine. They certainly have fought for their country. And, you know, I, I just can't see some of these other areas. Why aren't you doing the same thing? Why didn't um, uh, Belarus do that? Well, you know, the Belarus thing, uh, brutally repressed uh, by Lushenko, um, it's, uh, it's, it's a rather sad situation. That's really no longer a, a functional nation state. It's essentially uh, been taken over by Russia. You know, one of the things with Belarus uh, that, that is kind of a scapegoat is because of what's happening in Ukraine. But in, that, in, the, in the lead up to surrounding Ukraine with all these armored forces, uh, he ended up, uh, Putin and Russia ended up militarily occupying Belarus. They did this big exercise, but in some ways that exercise was a pretense for basically integrating the Belarus military into the Russian military. And so part of this thing is that Belarus has been absorbed within the Russian Federation without firing a shot. Lushenko, he, he lost the last election, and you know he's basically been holding on by, uh, by brute force. And, uh, and and Putin is basically propping him up, keeping him in power. So the only way that Lushenko could ma- remain in any way, shape, or form in power was to essentially keep the title but give away the country. And so, oh. unfortunately, Belarus is, is, is actually 
you know, uh, de facto part of the Russian Federation, even though it's technically a separate country. Functionally speaking, it's uh, from a, certainly from a national security standpoint, uh, the division is pretty much melted away. Do you think if um, they're successful in, in occupying Ukraine that they're going to stop there? Well, uh, that's another thing about Lushenko is, uh, he, you know, he's an autocrat. But he's he's kind of sloppy, too. He, he actually did a briefing, televised briefing for his generals, where he was talking about the invasion of Ukraine. And uh, and part of that is there's a, there's a picture that shows him standing from the map. And, uh, and, and interestingly, and it's probably a Russian map that he was allowed to brief. But if you look down the corner, you see the area of Odessa on the Black Sea. And they've got these red lines, which show the, uh, you know, the axes of attack that the uh, Russians and the, and the and the Belarusians will be uh, using in this in this in the in the campaign. Well, it just happens that these red lines run right into Moldova next door, and you see an area of the map of Moldova that's that's shaded in red, and uh, it's very clear from that map that their intent is to go into Moldova, definitely the areas of Moldova where you have a large ethnic Russian uh, population. So this does not look like he's stopping there. Now, whether they would try and extend that up to try and recover the Baltic states, in their minds recover, which is Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia, uh, that's certainly within the logical construct or the, the, the language that, that Putin has used that would be a clear inference because the same language that he used two weeks ago on that Monday where he basically said Ukraine is not a real nation state, it's not a real country, it's uh, it's always been part of the Russian Federation. Well, that's the same language that he's used in the past to talk about other places like the Baltic states, which used to be part of the USSR and for a very long time were part of uh, Russia, uh, Imperial Russia. So obviously that's a big concern, particularly because those are NATO countries. We have a treaty obligation, Article 5 under the NATO treaty, that if he goes in and tries to do that, then we are at war with Russia. It seems like the whole world is just watching this happen. And other than sanctions, nothing is being done about it. Um NATO or no NATO, why are why isn't somebody stopping this guy? He's just well, this little guy all by himself, like a little chihuahua. Why isn't somebody stopping him? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a that's a very good analogy. I like that. Uh, you know, uh, the one thing he has, and it's not like he's been shy of bringing it up. You know, it's it's often been that John McCain um, actually said. Uh, you know, he, he described Russia, he says, the big gas station. And, uh, <laughs> and, and it's true. If you look at Russia, what do they have? Well, they don't, they're not really a, an industrial power per se. You know, in the Soviet Union, they kind of were. But the problem with the Soviet Union was, you know, communism, uh, I'm not going to get too political here, but, but, but from an economic standpoint, communism tends to reinforce the status quo. It's it's you know it, it can marshal resources, but it stifles innovation and it stifles development of new things. So communism inevitably leads to a very, um, you know, pursuing yesterday's you know as, as, as it was a joke about a federal agency was like yesterday's technology tomorrow. Uh, but that's what communism does is it tends to stifle. So if you look at the USSR in the seventies and eighties. Uh, it was becoming more and more antiquated in its industrial capacity. So when the Soviet Union fell in the early 90s, they had a, a very uneconomical industrial apparatus. And so most of that just either fell apart or was dismantled and sold for you know scrap because it just couldn't do anything. So what do they have? They had raw materials. They have a lot of gas. They have a lot of oil, I should say, and they have a lot of natural gas. And that's the biggest things they export. The other things they have is they have some they have raw materials, you know, for certain things like some 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 metals. You know, for example, palladium, uh, which is needed for a lot of different things, to include catalytic converters. About forty percent of the world's palladium comes out of Russia. Uh, that you know, titanium is another area where they're huge. 
I think it's like 20, 25% of the titanium. Boeing and Airbus, for example, are very dependent on Russian-sourced titanium. Uh, that comes out of Russia. Nickel. Now, they produce about 10, maybe a little bit more percent of the world's nickel. But in certain categories, for example, nickel going into, re- going into rechargeable batteries made in Europe, it's a disproportionate number. I mean, a, a friend of mine in that industry said that European battery production is like 80% dependent or 80% of the nickel they get actually is, is sourced from, from Russia, which goes to some of these issues dealing with NATO and Germany. Germany has, you know, they, they, Germany stopped using coal plants some time back. After Fukushima, the meltdown in Japan, they made a political decision to stop using nuclear power plants. That's a whole other discussion, but they, <laughs> they decided to stop that. And they said, we're going to go to renewable energy very lofty goal, but dependent on rechargeable batteries to make that whole thing work. Well, in, uh, in doing that, two things happened. Number one, in the interim, they became extremely dependent on Russian natural gas to provide power to keep Germany going until they made this transition. And then the transition is required on building these very large-scale utility-level batteries to store energy which is sourced from Russian nickel. So Germany has a problem with sourcing, and and Europe has a problem with that. But that's what Russia does, and that's all part of Putin's planning. He he saw this uh, window of opportunity with reliance on what they produce in terms of natural resources, but that's it. So he's he's got natural resources, and then he threatens nuclear weapons. That's the other thing he has. And he's What about chemical weapons? He's also threatened that. He has, and, uh, um, you know, chemical weapons are banned by international treaty. You know, uh, you know one of the things, for years, uh, I was involved with doing uh, a lot of what's called homeland defense, homeland security, running around the Pacific with our U.S. territories and countries where we have a special status, of, uh, like Micronesia, Palau, Marshall Islands, where their homeland security and homeland defense are our, our national defense issues are are integrated with the U.S. And as part of that, I was working with a lot of people who were involved with uh, with with the destruction of chemical weapons under the treaty. A lot of stuff done under the Cold War, where chemical and biological weapons uh, after the Cold War, where chemical and biological weapons were destroyed. They're not supposed to use them either. But as you saw, Syria. With Russians there, and what I saw yesterday with Russian, you know, certainly they they reaffirmed that the Russians were very much involved with, you know, the planning, if you will, if not the execution of using chemical weapons by the Syrians in Syria, which has been the biggest violation of the chemical weapons ban. Uh, that, you know, they were using chemical weapons. You know, Russia certainly has chemical weapons. To make it worse, Putin has used chemical weapons, that Novichok nerve agent. Yeah. You're getting into weapons of mass destruction, even though he did that in a very specific, you know, trying, you know, assassinating and trying to assassinate people. So very, very concerned about that. And then, of course, this latest thing, which is, uh, you know, which we're putting out and everyone else is that Russia intends to make up this fake story that the Ukrainians are using chemical weapons, which will obviously be another one of Putin's little semi-covert plots to uh, use chemical weapons and try to blame it the Ukrainians. You know, one of the things I will say that we're doing um, probably better uh, than I've ever seen us do it before is in this area of what we call information operations. Russia uses disinformation as a core component of what they do, they, they create a lie, create lies and lies and lies upon lies and create these fake narratives. Um, we've been picking up on this well in advance. We've been calling them out on it well in advance. And for the rest of the world, when he does these little orchestrated things to make it look, you know, where he says Ukraine attacked us or something, the only place that gets any, any traction is within Russia where he has stopped all other media from covering what's going on. The rest of the world 
discount this. So we've actually been doing a, a much better job in that than we had, say, in years past. And uh, so I give us some credit on that one. Yeah, I heard um, that he's he's actually telling the Russian people that the this war was caused by the United States. Oh, he's just yeah. You know, there there is something the Soviets were, would do this, uh, and Putin Putin is an old KGB officer, and uh, you know, Soviets were, were rather famous. Um, they create the they create a narrative of whatever they want something to be, which usually has no relationship to the truth. Uh, and they just they keep saying it over and over again. They create it's very Orwellian, uh, and and with Putin you can clearly see that this is so ingrained in his nature that this is what I want it to be. So I'm going to say this. This is the story I want to put out. And uh, I mean I'm not a psychologist, but I'm sure someone would say that that is that is you know you know if you look at his mindset. You know, it's 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 really almost a it's, it comes from where he comes from. But uh, but lying like that, you know, making up stories like that to fit a narrative they want people to believe is just ingrained in his culture. I mean, ingrained in I should say his culture, but ingrained in his his psyche. And uh, and so that's what he does. He just puts these things out there. You know, the United States started this. The Ukrainians attacked us. So we had to respond. You know this this whole thing he's gonna he's he's setting up where he's gonna say oh they use chemical weapons a weapon of mass destruction trying to use our own language from Iraq and twisting it around to try and somehow fit the narrative of what he wants people to believe and even within that within Russia there's only a certain segment of the Russian population that really buys this stuff um, those who are younger who have been you know brought up with the internet. Um, you know, as part of their lives and digital devices and stuff, a lot of them are still able to get information from the outside world. So it's those who actually, you know, turn on the evening news and watch Russian television and uh, kind of rely on the, the official sources of information. They're the ones who are who are, who are really buying this, this line. The fake news? The, the fake news. <laughs> the fake news. Yeah, we, we have apparently in the last several years been inundated with a lot of fake news and i think they they call that that uh malignant narcissism but what mm-hmm. are you going to do i heard they kidnapped the mayor of one of the um, the towns over there what it could potentially have they are they going to release him or i think they're just going to hold him just, um you know it's it, it's an interesting thing um i you know it's uh, i i it is interesting because, you know, a lot of this, you know, in a war, let's just say in a war, passions run high. All right. And we talk about war crimes and there are war crimes, but there are laws of war. Uh, I actually, I, I, you know, in my, in my rather, uh, whatever my, my military career that was rather unusual that I ended up as part of that. Uh, I was in a unit. We didn't have a lawyer assigned to us at the time. So he sent me back to the Naval War College for a course on the law of war. And so I became the law of war expert. And that's always been an area of interest for me. Um, There are rules under international conventions, like the Geneva Convention being one of the most famous, but also going back to Hague. And there's other conventions that are out there. Uh, For example, there's a a convention uh, that that for the uh, cluster bomb units. The cluster bombs the Russians have been using. Well, there's right. actually an international treaty on that that bans those. Um, and so, could they take a mayor, uh, detain a mayor, or take him prisoner? Depends on what the mayor was doing. If the mayor was perceived by the Russians as part of the resistance under the law of war, they could probably detain that. You know, he he would be a detained person. Uh, I don't know if they would, you know, I don't know if his role was such that he could be considered a uh, a combatant in any way, shape, or form. I don't think so. Uh, obviously, President Zelensky has, has said this is a war crime. I'm not quite sure if detaining him would be considered a war crime per se. You know, d- you can detain uh, civilians in wartime. That that is that is allowed to do. Uh, I mean, allowed allowed conduct under war. 
Well, he just walked just out with them from the, the from the tape that we were shown. He just was walking with them. They had, you know, person on each side of him, but it wasn't like he was fighting them, trying to get away. It just it's, went uh, along. Yeah, you know, I mean, if, yeah, if the Russians come in, uh, you know, first thing they're going to do is they're, they're going to remove uh, uh, all local Ukrainian government authorities. So I'm not quite sure if that's a war crime per se. Uh Obviously, it's something we we'd like we, we don't want to see happen. We'd like to see that not happening. But uh, I'm just that 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 one. I, I kind of look at that. And I'm kind of looking at it as you know, uh, in the larger context of is this an uh, is, did what Russia do um, in a broader context is that wrong? Yes. Could this be one of the things that are brought up in higher level um, war crimes tribunals later on? I think it's one of the things they would bring as evidence, um, but it's just one of the many things they've done. I, I I don't consider that I don't consider that any certainly I don't consider that worse than some of the things they've done attacking hospitals and schools and other protected sites. I think that's going to be a a much larger war crime that's brought up uh, when this thing is all over. Yeah, I was I was going to say he's he's done some pretty heinous things and. You know, attacking a hospital, um, I guess a birthing center, basically, with babies in there. And, oh, just the whole thing is just creepy. But he is a creepy mm. person. What well, if those he... Are, those are, those uh, are illegal. That, I mean, that's, that's a clear violation. You know, there's a lot of weapons. There's a lot of horrible weapons out there. Um, you know, but, but attacking hospitals, that maternity ward, they essentially blew up. Um, you know, at first, you could sit there to a certain extent. I mean, there is collateral damage in wartime, all right? And and lawyers that work this stuff, they, they get into, okay, was it a primarily a military target where there were collateral damages? And then with certain weapons, you know, for example, the famous thermobaric bombs, the vacuum bombs, yeah. uh, which is a fuel-air explosive. Those, you know, they said that's a violation of international treaty. I've heard a number of news outlets say that. Well, actually, it's not. That is actually a legal weapon uh, in wartime. We we have fuel air explosives. We have used those. We've used a fuel air explosive. Very famously, the biggest conventional bomb ever dropped, or one of the biggest conventional bombs ever dropped, we used in Afghanistan against a, uh, against a cave and tunnel complex uh, of, of terrorists over there. Uh, it is a legal weapon. It, it permeates the uh, the air with a, uh, a vapor, a fuel-air mixture, and then it ignites. And it creates tremendous overpressure, but it also sucks all the oxygen out of the air. Let's just say it's, a, it's, a, it's an extremely deadly weapon, all right? It's very damaging. Uh, under, international, under international law, under, under, um, um, uh, in terms of how it's used, it has to be used against military targets. And there's some language that very much, if you, if, they, if there's going to be civilians that are impacted by it, it is supposed to, you know, the, it errs towards not using it, all right, uh, to to limit the amount, how that's used. That doesn't appear to be how the Russians are using it. I was going to say, I don't uh, think he cares. He's he's just, he you know. He, he just, he's trying to create casualties. And, and for, for Putin, uh civilians is just one of is, is one of the big tools that he has for uh, putting pressure on the Ukrainian government and resistance to capitulate. So rather than something that you're supposed to avoid doing, it's something that he within in, within his mindset, that's just part of what he's trying to accomplish. You know he thinks that's perfectly okay. Of course, he's never been judged. I mean if uh, Depending on how this war ends up, you know, if uh, if you know the, the sanctions and everything we put on Russia, uh, it's it's really not it's not outside possibility that you would see uh, a civil uprising in Moscow and other cities around Russia. I think you know over time, as the economy continues to spiral collapse, I would be surprised if you wouldn't see uprisings around Russia. So you know. Whether he ends up, um, you know, in a in the Hague, standing trial at the end of the war, you really think he's going to go there? 
I, I, I think you're going to have some civil unrest as, as the economy collapses. And particularly as people are watching their entire, as they watch everything they've accomplished in life disappear. Yeah. Um, I, I just don't see his, I don't think he can maintain uh, stability over the long run. I just, you know, and, and certainly we've seen Russia has, it's not, it's, I'm, I'm not, and the reason I say this is because they're already having problems. You saw right before the war, he had to send in Russian troops into a neighboring republic, Kazakhstan, to put down a civil uprising that was coming very, you know, if it, it had not been put down with the help of the Russians, might have overthrown the government there. And, uh, and Belarus had civil uprising, and Moscow at one time had massive protests on the streets. And the only way he's been able to suppress that is through, the, through brutal authoritarian tactics. Yeah, get your but military you to remove forever. those people. The peace, mm-hmm. the peaceful, yeah, riots. So, what if Putin declares martial law? What happens? Well, well, if he declares martial law, um, I tell you, functionally, I don't know if it makes much difference. The Duma, which is their parliament, is pretty much a rubber stamp, and uh, I, I don't think there's any anyone going to make strong protestations that this would upset the independence of the judiciary in Russia. All right. Um, but what that would do is it would certainly remove the pretense that 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 something is very wrong with Ukraine. Uh, even for those who watch the evening news, the official news or, or read the, the, the officially approved media in Russia, a couple things are going to jump out to him. If he declares martial law, that says there's some exigent situation so so dire that he had to declare martial law. That's got to get people wondering what that is, because it it certainly doesn't fit the narrative of some little special military operation that that he's been putting out about Ukraine. Because you know, yeah, he said it was a security thing. He is going in there to protect these people. Yeah, and and you don't if you're doing that, why are you having to declare martial law? I mean, exactly. even even for some of the most pro Putin, they've got to be thinking. Something's a little off with that. The other thing is, and this may sound uh, rather rather odd, but let me just say this. Russians love Big Macs. All right? They, they love McDonald's. They love their Starbucks. They love their Apple. They love their iPhones. They love, you know, it, Muscovites particularly. Uh, you know, they, they buy Western stuff. It's a huge status symbol. But it's also a part of their daily life. And with Starbucks and Apple and uh, McDonald's and a lot of these big Western brands, strangely enough, Burger King is not pulled out. I don't know what the story is on that. But um, but with all these Western brands shutting their stores and laying off, you know, uh, tens of thousands of uh, Russians who they, whom they employ, uh, that's, that's got to be making them wonder. It's not just the U.S. There's other Western companies that have been doing the same thing. As they watch these Western brands, you know, the lights go dark, so to speak, on these uh, on these retail outlets, but also watching these industrial, uh, cooperative industrial ventures being shut down as well. That has to permeate the mind of the average Russian, and certainly, you know, because very aware to those who we would call maybe the elites, those who are uh, you know, the, the, those who actually kind of run the company, our country, if you will, that uh, something is very, very, very wrong because it's unprecedented. Uh, certainly since the start of Russia, the end of the Soviet Union, this is a, they've never seen anything even close to this. Yeah. And so, so even though he puts out this false narrative, at some point reality creeps into that false narrative. And, you know, with authoritarian states... Uh, the history of authoritarian states are when they fall, they fall quickly. Yeah. Everything, everything's kind of stable and controlled until all of a sudden it's not. Uh, you know, and, and, and in his mind, he's got to be thinking about what happened to, you know, Ceausescu in Romania, right. who'd been the dictator there forever. He's got to be thinking about, you know, obviously Gaddafi in Libya and wondering if maybe that's his future as well. Okay, we're going to take, you're going to stay with us, please. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back in a few. 
Thanks for staying with us. In case you just joined us, our our guest today is the CEO of Global Risk Intelligence Planning, Lieutenant Colonel Hal Kempfer, who is Marine retired, and we've been talking about Ukraine. And what I would like to know, what would happen if Putin was taken out? I mean, you know, taken out. Yeah, and I'm assuming that's not taken out to dinner, right? Exactly. Um, We're not going to Big Mac. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I can't get a Big Mac now, so that that takes that option right <laughs> off the table. Um, so, uh, uh, no happy meals for him. Um, <laughs> well, um, you know, it's it's interesting. Uh, you know, obviously, there's multiple scenarios. Uh, one scenario is that the uh, oligarchs, and that's that's actually part of what you're seeing with this pressure with uh with seizing these mega yachts around the world seizing these mansions these all these assets of the oligarchs is to put overwhelming phenomenal pressure on the oligarchs who prop him up um to to see the end of their basically see the end of their their fortunes the end of their way of doing business around the world to put pressure on them to step in and and in typical russian historical fashion, the idea is that they would you know, orchestrate some sort of coup to have him removed. Uh, now, whether that whether he survives that coup is another story. I, I don't know. Um, uh, I don't, you know, and, and but I will say this, he, he has, he, he's a, he's pretty canny about issues like this and security. You know, that thing where he stays 30 feet away from everybody. I was going to say the table that's, you know, the size of a football yeah. field. Yeah, it looks like something from Hollywood with an Austin Powers movie where he's sitting at the end of this <laughs> long table and stuff. And uh, Well, part of that is, that, oh, he's a germaphobe, he doesn't want COVID, blah, blah, blah. Okay, uh, you know, that that's, that's a that's a excuse. That's built. Let's say a plausible, plausible excuse. The other side is, you got to remember, this guy's been sitting there plotting and planning and conducting assassination stuff in Russia and outside of Russia for for decades, and uh, and he's a covert operations officer, and so as such, he's very familiar with the variety of ways that somebody can assassinate someone. And if you look at that, uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways that somebody could take somebody out, which tells me he may not completely trust all of those around him. Very fearful of that. Very fearful that, you know, he's been using Novichok nerve agent. Maybe one of them could have something like that that they secreted into a setting. So he maintains physical distance from a lot of those around him. And I think part of that is to avoid a potential assassination thing. He also, I would imagine, has multiple layers of redundant security that, uh, you know, it, it would be very difficult to remove one of those layers, you know, you you compromise another layer to have a completely separate other layer right behind it that has a completely separate chain of command. And so his personal security, I think he's, he's what we call a really hard target. He'd be, you know, he'd be tough. He'd be tough for any coup plotter to get to. So I'm not quite sure you'd, they'd have to, you know, they have to isolate him. Then of course, the other fear is uh, what an isolated Putin um, seeing his demise and having uh, having control of the the nuclear button or the nuclear trigger go out with the bang. His? Well, that's the fear. Yeah, yeah. And and he actually said he moved his uh, uh, for lack of a term his girlfriend and uh, and uh, either his child or children with her. It's not quite clear into a uh, into a uh, uh, one of those hardened shelters to survive a nuclear attack. I think that may have been for dramatic effect or anything else to basically say, Hey, look, I'm ready. And in case you think, uh, you know, I won't do it. Let me just tell you what I did. What about the countries that appear to be supporting what's going on? Like North Korea, Mexico hasn't taken a stand, Cuba. What about these countries? Are they just, not getting involved, or is there not getting involved making a, a statement to Putin? Well, North Korea, I'm I'm not surprised. You know, uh, when you when you look at countries like Cuba, Venezuela, North Korea, 
Belarus, obviously, that th- I don't think they 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 are told how to vote uh, on the international stage now. Uh, I'm not surprised. Mexico is a little bit of a head scratcher. Um, yeah, a lot of quirky stuff with with, uh, with sometimes how they vote. Um, every once in a while, you run into some head scratchers. You're not quite sure why they're voting or, or saying what they're saying. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of you know there are countries aligned. The interesting thing though is there's fewer countries aligned. One of the things that that happened with uh, which uh, honestly I I didn't realize that Russia was still uh, as widely um, was still under most favored nation status as widely as it was. I was uh, when that was announced. I had to go back and look. I go, really that was all still in place to allow them to do that. I yeah I was a little I was a little stunned because I remember when that happened. But so much had changed. I thought that was one of the things that we curtailed a lot after 2014. Apparently, we had not curtailed it as much as I thought we had. But one of the things is um, um, is that you know, with we don't do it as much these days because there's so much free trade around the world, and that's something that over the last 30 years has been been pushed as a mantra. Uh, all the free trade, you don't see the large tariff barriers that you used to see. Now, under the Trump administration, we started seeing some tariffs uh, put into place to curtail, uh, you know, bad activity or bad, bad, you know, bad policies and stuff by other countries, uh, anti, anti-competitive activities. You know, China, for example, uh, when they do things where it's uh, clearly it's the, the Chinese, um, you know, Chinese government doing anti-competitive activities on the, on the global marketplace. We did that. Well, now this is a different situation where we're looking at Russia and what they're doing in Ukraine. And I would say we're looking a little bit further than that, too, uh, because they've done the same thing in Georgia. But uh, when we're looking at that and taking away this thing, there's some there's some tools that we have that can curtail these other countries from aligning with uh, with Russia politically, but but also more importantly, economically. Um, we, we're taking that away, which will lead to imposing either blocking, for example, with vodka and, uh, I'm assuming caviar and some other, you know, some of the high end luxury things. We're blocking those things entirely from being imported. And diamonds. But yeah, and diamonds. Yeah. Yeah, And Putin says that's actually, these sanctions are an act of war. Yeah, he, he says everything's an act of war. I think you know. There's, I saw, I was reading something today. I, I've been, you know, I, as you know, I've been on the news a lot. Yeah. And, uh, and he just, he, you know, his it's that it's that empty rhetoric stuff. He says everything's an act of war, but more substantively, you know, the sanctions with this is it's not only going after the things they directly export, but the things they indirectly export. So if another country produces stuff that's reliant on Russian materials. Um, and, and I did, I worked, I, I did some stuff. I was, uh, uh, my unusual career, military career and stuff. I was working with customs for a long time, but, but you can take, um, we can look at content. What percentage of whatever product is, is coming into the U S that has certain content that was produced in other countries. So if they're, so if they're taking uh, raw material from Russia and we assess that 10% of, you know, for example, an imported car, and I'm just using that arbitrarily because I'm trying to think where we would import a car that was made with with Russian material. But we could turn around and say that is going to hit huge tariffs because it comes from Russia. All of a sudden, we've changed the economics of how they produce that car, and we put pressure on that third country to find a different source of raw material or different source for semi-finished products to put into whatever they're trying to export to the United States or to other countries or any of the G7 countries, certainly, or any of the other countries that go along that that are with us in this most favored nation status uh, move. And so what that does is it puts pressure globally containing, if if I could use that term, uh, Russia's ability to operate in the global marketplace. And that puts more and more pressure because all of a sudden, not only can't they directly export stuff, but they're going to have a tough time indirectly exporting it to countries that are kind of going along with what they're doing. Um, it's there's there's a lot of tools there, and in the in the era of free trade, 
We've not used them like we used to use them way back when, but I think it's fair to say that, that, that times are changing very quickly. There's also been concern, and I, I don't know if it's true or not, I heard that, you know, some white supremacists from America are emboldened by what's going on and traveling to Russia. What can Americans do to help watch for domestic terrorism and maybe some radical behavior? What would they do? How would they report this and to whom? Well, um, uh, Sherry, you bring up a good point. There are... Uh, neo-Nazi white supremacist groups uh, in the U.S., some of whom have uh, ties definitely online, but actually much more, much stronger than that, with Russian white supremacists. And, and you know, U- Ukraine has, has some white supremacists as well. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, as much as, I mean, look, Putin puts out this thing saying, you know, the, the, the Nazi government, or neo-Nazi government of Ukraine, which is everyone kind of it's like neo-Nazi. The president Zelensky, he's he's Jewish. Where, where, exactly. where is this? You know, it's like where's this coming from? Um, uh, you know, that's that's just something that's part of his kit bag of, of bold-faced lies. But if you go back historically, uh, in World War II, um, and prior to World War II, to suppress Ukrainian nationalism, Stalin orchestrated a famine, killing millions of Ukrainians. It's one of the more horrific acts in history. He actually starved the Ukrainian people and killed millions of people in order to stop Ukrainian nationalism under the Soviet Union. It's horrific. When the Germans rolled in in World War II, initially a lot of Ukrainians may not have been thrilled with the Germans, but they definitely were happy to see Stalin's folks out of there. And so a number of them collaborated with the Germans. Now, that quickly changed for the most part, although some did continue to collaborate with the Germans throughout the war. And so there were some, uh, you know, there were some that were neo-Nazis. There were some Ukrainians that became members of the SS. That's true. That was, you know, you saw that around all of Europe. You saw uh, uh, some of that where the Germans occupied areas. Uh, but... But he hearkens, you know, when, when Putin's doing that, he's trying to resurrect that era where the Ukrainians were, a lot of the Ukrainians were not anti-German uh, or anti-being invaded. But basically they saw they were getting liberated from Stalin is what they saw. And uh, so he points to that. Well, there are there are neo-Nazi elements in Ukraine. And this is something that's being watched very carefully. Uh, I, you know, I know the FBI and others are, are looking at this very carefully, uh, where there are neo-Nazis here in the U.S., like uh, Atomwaffen, which is based in Texas, for example. They have ties over in that part of the world uh, that they might send their uh, send their, 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 their American citizens, might go over there to get, quote, combat training, combat experience, and then come back to the U.S. and apply those skills here. Interesting, this, this whole thing is something we saw with... Uh, in a different context with al-Qaeda and ISIS, where they would have uh, uh, people travel, foreign fighters, if you will, travel uh, who are um, adamant, violent jihadists, for lack of a better term, that would go to get training and experience as combatants, and then they would come back to their home countries and do terrorist attacks. Well, that's the same thing we're seeing here. We're just seeing it with the uh, white supremacist movement. That's a big fear with that but i will say it's being watched so what do people need to look for well if you're you know first off if your neighbor's flying a russian flag that's a clue as we call it in the business it's something a little <laughs> off but uh red know. flag <laughs> yeah but i would look for you know classic signs of white supremacist stuff uh just be aware of that you know and certainly if you if you catch wind that somebody is traveling to uh russia you know or traveling over there and you know that they're leaning that direction anyway from language, symbology, whatever. Um, I, would, I would definitely report that to the authorities. You can always call the FBI direct. Uh, you can go online, um, and they actually have a hotline, and you can report it. And uh, the FBI watches this stuff. That doesn't mean they're going to just, you know, arrest somebody right away. There's a lot of, you know, the, the problem is 
there will be a few Americans that go over there that have those violent extremist beliefs, and that's what their goals and motivations are. There's a lot more Americans going over there who are just, you know, this is genuine, um, you know, genuine heartfelt uh, desire to to assist the Ukrainian people. Right. And there's a lot of a lot of veterans going over there saying, "Hey, look, you know, you know, the rush. What the Russians did is ethically, morally, everything wrong. I'm going to help the Ukrainians, and they're going into harm's way to help the Ukrainian people." Um, Generally speaking, as U.S. policy, we're discouraging any Americans from going over there and getting involved with that war. That's always been longstanding uh, that we discourage that. But there's there's Americans doing that. There's I saw a thing uh, a few days ago that there's a whole bunch of uh, Royal Marine com- Commandos from Great Britain who are going over there. You know, we got, you know, we have, um, you know, U.S. veterans. You know, we got Army, Army and Marines who are going over there to uh, fight with them. There's a lot of Ukrainian Americans who are going back there because they're, you it's know, their homeland. Their, their families. Yeah, I mean, they're they're going to fight, and so, yeah, you're seeing that. But yeah, if you see someone in, you know, and you know that they are leaning towards violent extremists, you know, you know, white Putin supporter, Nazi stuff. <laughs> yeah, and 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 then you hear that their travel plans include a uh, trip to Moscow and then down to Kiev. Well. That's an indicator, and you know, let the authorities know because they're going to want to track them. Doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be able to, you know, not going to necessarily charge them with anything or whatever, but they will definitely want to know keep, about it because they're going to want to track them. them when they come. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Want, well, that I, way they want to track them in the same way they want to track somebody who was a, you know, an ISIS or an Al Qaeda uh, supporter as well. Same sort of thinking. So. Okay, I've had people ask me, why aren't we sending aircraft over to Poland if Poland's willing to give their aircraft to the Ukraine government? What's going on with that? We only have like five minutes left, so I, you know, Uh, how come? Yeah, tell me. I'll give you the quick one. All right, Uh, first off, that may change. (laughs) That's the first (laughs) thing I want to say. You know, that that may may change. I got to tell you that the political pressure on that may change. There, the the fear is, uh, and it, it really deals with you know it's not splitting hairs legally so much as what will Putin do, is if there's aircraft, military aircraft flying from a NATO country into Ukrainian airspace, Putin could turn right around and say, well that's it, NATO is now at war with us. And those aircraft could be unarmed, and just flying and landing right onside the other side of the border. But the fact they flew into Ukrainian airspace, it was a Ukraine is part of Russia, therefore you're flying into Russian airspace, therefore it's a a uh, enemy aircraft from NATO coming to fight us. That's the legalistic political interpretation of that. And that's what they're trying to work around. I mean, you know, this really gets down. It's like, gee, could we find a way to land at an airport on the Polish side of the border and then tow that airplane into Ukraine so it could take off from a Ukrainian airport without flying into it? I mean, it, it, it really gets almost kind of silly like that. But you're, But that's actually some stuff that was talked about in World War II before the U.S. entered the war with helping Britain, was how do we get aircraft to Britain without entering the war? It was well, kind of an interesting thing. What's the difference between sending aircraft over there or sending, you know, arms over there? That's a, that's a really good question. And uh, that's not your... I will tell you in Congress, they're asking that question, too, which is, what's the difference? You know, the difference is the conveyance. Uh, if we were to send ships on the water or aircraft flying in the sky, uh, the question, the the issue is, is that an incursion from a NATO country? Sneaking it across the border, we're doing that. That, you know, getting it into the country, and it's not always sneaking because it's the Ukrainian border. So we're not so much sneaking. We're we're transferring stuff across the border. That's where I'm seeing they're kind of going back. You know, uh, what 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 the White House is desperately trying to avoid and what NATO is trying to avoid is doing stuff that would inadvertently escalate this thing into being a direct conflict with Russia and NATO. And, uh, and, and some of the, you know, hyperbole coming out of Putin, uh, it's somewhat effective because it's got everybody very concerned that even if they do something that we would sit there and say that is not uh, a violation, that he would turn around and say, we won't care, we're, we're going to interpret it that way anyway. 
And so they're afraid that they're, that they're going to escalate this. And, and the same issue would be if, if we were to give a ship to Ukraine and it tried to sell into Odessa, uh, they could make the same argument there. Um, so that's, that's a big concern. I think this is going to, this is going to wind out over time. I mean, I think they could, you know, the other, if I made this real quick, the other side, too, is they're doing the math is how much value does this break? The concern is you fly the MiGs, they land at the airport, and you saw yesterday where they, they bombed all those western airports, right? those airfields. Right. That's making a statement. Putin's saying, fine, fly the MiGs in, I'll blow up the airfield, and you'll lose half your MiGs. Hmm. That's the point, which is they're concerned that, you know, he does have the ability to arrange those airfields, and he wanted to make that very clear yesterday, which is, you land them doesn't mean you're going to be able to keep them. And, uh, and then the other thing is all the support. It's not just the planes. It's everything it takes to keep those things flying in the air. So you got to bring them in. You got to maintain them. You got to arm them. You got to fuel them. It, yeah, you need, uh, you, you need know. staff. <laughs> yeah, so there, the logistics. There's logistics. Yeah, there's some logistics discussions on this too, which is. How many of those planes will actually be able to fly on a regular basis? How many sorties will they be able to do? And, and what will those sorties, uh, how much more value added for all the risks that we're taking with this? How much, you know, uh, of escalating the war is a war between Russia and NATO. What value are these planes going to bring? And that's one that they are clearly grappling with. And NATO's been grappling with that as well. Uh, Poland looks a little different. Like, we just want to keep the Russians away from our border, period. We're just, you know. Exactly. uh, But NATO and the U.S. looks at a little bit more broadly. So... Well, I want to yeah. thank you for coming on and, and clarifying a lot of this because, you know, it is confusing. And, you know, our hats off to the Ukrainian people. They are certainly digging their feet in and holding their ground. And thank God they have brave people over there. And thank you for your service. Well, well, thank you, Sherry. And Sherry, thanks for having me on and uh, give me a chance to talk about this. And uh, so we'll be talking to anyway. you soon. <laughs> you take care.